Today's sermon text is Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 25. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the very appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Now, we've been waiting a long time for Samson. I mean, think about it for a minute. He's, uh, quite, uh, he's quite a character. What do you think about when you, you know, Samson's probably the most well-known of all the judges and probably the least understood of the judges. So what do you think about when you think Samson? Maybe 
oversexed, womanizer, kind of anger management problem, didn't live up to his full potential. I, I mean, you'd be shocked at the amount of, um, even among evangelical commentators, that they hold him really with disdain. One wrote, this man is extraordinarily strong and is extraordinarily stupid. Uh, another one, this man whose birth had promised so much is a disappointment. Uh, this is still another. He is an embarrassment for all evangelicals. You know, the, um, most Bible study lessons, when you talk about Samson, you know, normally it's, uh, it's don't do what he did and don't be who he was, basically is what the lessons are. And, and when you look at 14, 15, and 16, you can almost think, you know, his life seems like a failure, and at the end, he does something kind of good, but you're not sure you can say it's kind of good because it appears like he commits suicide. So, so you don't know what to do with Samson. Well, is this fair? Is this fair? We've seen that every judge has been a representative of God, and even though we may have originally thought different of them, we found that they were used of God, they brought people to rest in God, they did restrain evil. We saw that they did act, in, they weren't perfect, but they did in, act in accordance with it. So as the culture was kind of spiraling downward, we saw that the judges have still gone straight. We saw that with Gideon, we saw that with Jephthah. Are we gonna see that with Samson? Well, you gotta wait a week, because we're only at the birth narrative. So come back next week and we'll unpack Samson and all of his glory. But we have a birth narrative, which is kind of weird. Because all along we've been doing these cycles, when they get into trouble they cry out and then God brings to deliver. But here we have a birth narrative. Now birth narratives are significant. There's only seven in the Bible, so you've got to kind of look at them. And, and this birth narrative is stuck in a place that it makes us, what's going on here? What's God doing? Well, I think God is showing us the uniqueness of Samson. Let me explain. All the other judges, if you've been here, they've all been alive and available and God chose them. But this judge, God brought him forth. It's as if God is creating him from scratch. Uh, God brings Samson through a miraculous birth, and he brought him, as you, as you heard read, to save Israel. It's God. He's the last judge. He's the climactic judge. Do you realize that 20% of the entire book is on this man? Why? Well, I think he's showing us a significant lesson. And, and that is this, that God saves sinners through a spirit-filled savior. He raises up Samson as a savior of his people. He literally gives birth to the savior of his people. Kind of sounds to me like a bit of a Christmas story going on here. Well, we'll look into that more. But, but two things, God saves sinners through a spirit-filled Savior. That's really what 13 is all about. So let's look at this idea of God saving sinners. Look with me back at verse 1. He says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this isn't new to you. You've heard this time and time again. They did evil again. They keep repeating this idea of slipping into evil. We know what evil is. Evil isn't some undefined mess, it's, for, it's forgetting God. And when we forget about God and we begin to see the shiny objects in life, we forsake God and we go after those things. It may be fine, relationships, marriage, money, business, success, whatever. 
uh, but we forsake him. We begin to live as if he doesn't exist. And this gets them into trouble, which we see here, and it has all the previous times. And so we're not surprised by what God does. God brings them and gives them over to these Philistines. Now, the Philistines oppressed Israel for 40 years, the longest oppression in the book of Judges. Philistines were introduced to them here. We often think of them as kind of the uncultured, don't be a Philistine kind of thing. And, uh, but, but they really were quite cultured, you know, at least in terms of what we've discovered from archaeology. Uh, you have, they were educated in buildings. I think they were the first people to develop multi-story buildings. In war, they were the first to move in battle formations. Uh, they were the first to have iron in an age where bronze was dominant. That's a game changer in war. So they were a cultured people, but they still were a brutal people to be as an oppressor and for 40 years. But th that's not new. We've seen these things. What is missing in this story that we've had in the previous? <clears throat> the people don't cry out. Every other time they've cried mm -hmm. out. Uh, they've, they've called out to God. Maybe it wasn't repentance. Maybe these just are crying out to God. They don't hear. It's as if they've become, a comp it's as if they've become accustomed to being kind of walking in servitude. In other words, what should shock us in verse 1 is they didn't cry out. Are they so dead in their own sin and servitude that they see that as the new normal? I'd, I think that's what it is. But I did say that God saves sinners. And he saves sinners like these. Now, it's been told to me that some people say, well, Tom Mercer, he, when he preaches, he talks often about sin. And uh, that may be true. It may be true. Uh, I probably do it because I am a sinner, just full disclosure on that one. And um, everybody I'm looking at, I think, fills the same box. So <clears throat> I think it might apply to you. And God talks about it an awful lot. And I think we've lost our... our calibration on what sin actually is, right? So David Wells in his book, Courage to be Protestant, says that only 17% in a survey group saw sin as in relationship to God. In fact, sin as a word is kind of really, kind of been thrown to the side. We use terms like evil. You know, evil now has kind of replaced sin. Here's the problem with evil. Uh, evil has no moral referent. It has no, when you remove God from the picture, evil now becomes just kind of this general badness. But nobody can define it, or I should say, everybody gets to define it. And that's what we see here. We see a people, I don't think that these folks saw themselves as any sort of sinning group. Notice, it's they did evil in the sight of God. The way God looks at it, he says it's evil. I don't think they saw it. I don't think they saw their actions as anything but morally acceptable. I think they were okay with what they were doing. I mean, it, it says in chapter 17, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. They, they said, no, this is fine. This is what everybody does. Or in Proverbs 30, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. We can think we're fine. You see this in our day, don't you? I, I mean, we can tend to look at all of our decisions and all of our choices, and they make sense to us. They make sense. I mean, I mean we may <clears throat> fabricate a little here, we may lie a little here, we may steal a little here, we may 
you know, move in this relationship in a certain way that's consensual. Everybody's on board. We're okay with it. It, it seems okay to us. We can rationalize and justify whatever we do. <clears throat> and we do this, by the way, in Christian circles. We're following our conscience. That's what we do. Or we're going to follow our heart on this one. That's a great one. I'm just following my heart on this one. Just follow my heart. Well, we probably need to take a step back on that one. Our hearts and our consciences are, are easily led astray, and, and we're only to follow the heart or follow the conscience as it's being directed by the Word of God. Not just because we feel a certain way is okay. That doesn't justify its rightness because you are, we live in an age where truth used to be a given, and now it's a construct. We make truth as we see it. Hart Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in England in the mid-20th century, says, you'll never make yourself feel that you're a sinner. There, there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that's always defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. We can always put up a good case for ourselves, even if we try to make ourselves feel that we're sinners. We'll never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. So you enter God back in the moral core of a universe, and then you begin to get an idea. Otherwise, I think we can just, just justify ourselves throughout. Tim Keller on this passage writes, he says, this teaches us that sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or violating our standards, but in violating God's standards. So they did evil in the sight of God. That's what discerns for us whether something is evil or not, whether it's in the sight of God. So you see the nature of sin is against God. You also see here in verse 1 that, that the nature of sin is it's repetitious. Haven't we seen it over and over? I mean, we're tired of it. It's not just repetitious. It's actually intensifying. You know, they continue to... They end up forsaking God, or, or they, they forget God, then they forsake God, they get into trouble, oppression comes, and then they cry out to God, he sends a deliverer. And we keep seeing the cycle. But, but honestly, this is what we face, isn't it? You, you walk with God for a while, things are going well, you begin to forget about him a little bit, you forsake him, you chase after the shiny stuff in life, and then all of a sudden you get hardened to it, you compartmentalize your life, you work it into your life that you can deal with it now, but then suffering comes from that, and then what do you do? You end up waking up, your sin's exposed, you're embarrassed, you repent, you return to God, time goes along, and you begin to slip in the same thing. Do you see the deceptive nature of sin? And this is the nature of who we are as a people. It's almost like sin is inescapable. It's almost like we can't get away from it. And I think that's what it's telling us. This is why this need for a savior to be born to deliver us, because we keep finding the same hole to step into. But there's one more thing about it, and that is that it's so deceptive. You know, th this whole book has been about idolatry. Now, you remember I said a few weeks back, we think of idolatry, you go to some third world country, they're worshiping a kind of a, a wood or stone statue. That's not it. They may do that. But those statues, as I said, they represent something. We, we practice idolatry when we take the things that God has given to us and we try to fashion an identity or a life or we try to find fulfillment or self-actualization. And maybe it's in business, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in a marriage, maybe it's in having kids. Uh, maybe it's in financial security. Maybe it's in being beautiful or being at the top of your class in academic world, whatever it is. But we see in those things, we put more value in them than they actually have. 
We love them inordinately, is what Augustine would say. And then we give ourselves to them. We work super hard to get the job, or we work super hard for the relationship, and we are, in fact, worshiping them. And God is nowhere in that. But it doesn't lead to happiness, because the things of this world cannot satisfy people that bear the image of a God out of this world. It'll never fill you. You'll always be hungry. You'll always be looking for something more. It's like the child is taken away from its parents, young, never see the parents again. They may be loved and cared for by adoptive parents. That's a beautiful thing. We love that. But there's still that, I want to know. I want to know. There's that longing that we have. You've been made in the image of God. You long for him. Even Chris Everett, some of you <clears throat> perhaps my age would know the name, old profession, old. She's not old. It's kind of self-condemning, isn't it? <clears throat> she was a professional back, I think, in the 70s and probably early 80s, uh, a woman tennis player, world champion, really great at the sport. She writes this, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed. I was afraid because so much of my life had been defined by me being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. This is what idolatry does to us. This is the nature of sin. This is what is evil in God's sight, a forgetting of God and then a forsaking of God, pursuing the loves of this world. Now, I said God saves sinners. This is really the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God has always been pursuing sinners to save. You see it in Adam and Eve right in the garden. He goes after them. He pursues them to save them. This is the beautiful thing about the mercy of God. He wants to come and draw us to himself where we experience forgiveness, reconciliation. We have an identity as a child of God that's transcendent, that goes beyond this life. He wants us to be to himself. It's the message that you see in the Old Testament. God's often seen as mean. Don't see it here. You see him pursuing a people by bringing forth a savior to save. You see it in the New Testament. <coughs> Jeremy read the passage in 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now there's Paul saying, listen, I was the louse of louses. I'm an example to convince you that God loves to save sinners. Christ has come to save sinners. So if you're here <clears throat> and, and you're not a Christian, uh, let me encourage you. Uh, we don't clean ourselves up to come to God. He has come to us. This is the mercy of God, uh, that we're called to repent and believe in a God who is so kind to save. Don't neglect the mercy of God. You may have neglected it for 60 years, but neglect it no more. You know in your own life that same cycle that plays itself out. You know the long-standing dissatisfaction with life. You don't have to live long in this world to see that it never measures up and fulfills the promises it gives. So here, there's hope for the sinner. Even these people that are under the oppression of the Philistines, there's hope for them. But also, if you're here as a Christian, 
This passage has encouragement for us. Encouragement for us that, you know, we and you may be born again. That God may have taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, but you struggle with sin. You know, John Owen, the great theologian of the 17th century, you know, the gospel has broken the dominion of sin. It no longer controls us, but we still struggle with it. We still have the presence of sin. I still struggle with temptations, anger, bitterness, whatever the case. You've got your own ingredient mix that you struggle with. And the Christian just practices repentance. It's a superficial view to think that we don't struggle with sin. The Christian just knows that the struggle is there and that he has given us the pathway of confession and repentance. Do you repent? Do you practice that? as a means of maintaining your relationship with God and others? You know, Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. <clears throat> do we do that? Do, do we look at our own lives and say, where have I walked? In what ways might be evil in the sight of God? And then I repent and confess. Now, now many of us, I know, you've been in the faith a long time. And it would be embarrassing for you to even admit that. May I encourage you to just put the fork in that? That we struggle and we can still come to him? You don't need... You don't need to clean up to come to God. That's what we do when guests come. You know, you've been working in the yard, you go up and shower, make sure you look presentable. That's not how we come to God. We come to God to get cleaned up. So you may have deep, dark pockets of your life, pornography, alcohol, food, lust, inappropriate relationships, crossing lines in certain areas. And you think, I've I, I got to do some self-reformation before I come to God. That's not how he works. He, he's merciful. He's, he saves sinners like us. <clears throat> Even to the Christian who has fallen to the side. Let's look at John Owen again. He, these are words from about <clears throat> 400 years ago. Here's what he writes. He says, we're told that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. This means that he can no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wanderings than a nursing father should cast away a sucking child for its crying. And thus it is with Christ. He's able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, provocations of his people. Even as a nurse or nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant. This isn't a license to remain in it, if you understand the cross, but it's an invitation to come out of it. It's an invitation by God. So we see that God saves sinners just in that first verse. It's really what the chapter is about. God saves sinners, but how does he do it? Well, that's where we get into this dialogue between the angel and Manoah and his wife. Look with me at 2 to 5. He says, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat anything unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So here, Manoah's wife is greeted by this angel, angel of the Lord, someone impressive, doesn't know who it is, but he says, you're going to conceive and bear a son, a son who will save. She's going to give birth to a savior of sorts. And then, of course, she's instructed to not drink wine and to not eat anything unclean, which 
means perhaps that she was pregnant at the time of visitation. And then she's instructed for this boy that no razors to come to his head. Now, that probably refers to the Nazarite vow of chapter 6 in the book of Numbers. You know, for those people who are in the tribes of Israel, not in the priestly tribe, but in all the other tribes, if they wanted to dedicate their lives for a season of time to God, they'd let their hair grow. They wouldn't drink anything from the fruit of the vine. They wouldn't touch a dead body. It was kind of like I'm dedicating myself to God for service for this period of time. It gave them a chance to give themselves to God wholly and completely. And this is what Samson was going to be. From the womb. It was a temporary vow because it was so difficult to keep. But he would keep it from the womb. So that's the scene. He comes and he tells her all these things. Well, of course, she goes home and reports it all to her husband and is excited to say, I'm going to have a child. The child's going to be a savior of Israel, a judge. He's going to deliver us. And, of course, the husband's thinking, where have you been? What have you been doing? What have you been drinking? So he wants his own confirmation, which it seems honored by God because God does, you know, the angel visits him. And he sees this angel and he says, tell me what about, tell me the manner of this child. Tell me all about it. Look with me at verse 12. He says, and Manoah says, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. It's amazing to me. You're told you're going to have a king in your belly, a judge. I want to know what to do. What kind of education? How do I raise him? You can imagine all the questions. And notice that the angel gives him nothing. Just tell the women to be careful. Now, I don't think Manoah knows who he's speaking with right now. It could be a prophet. It could be an angel of God. It's not until the offering is made and the angel goes up in the flames of the offering, then they fall on their faces and they realize, oh, we're in trouble. Uh, we're going to die. We've seen God himself. Now, it's the woman who has the sense to back him off the edge and say, don't be silly. He wouldn't have accepted the offering. You know, the women come in and kind of bring some measure of logic and, and, and uh, sensibility. So they back away. But, but what it tells us is that they realized it was not an angel of the Lord. It was a theophany, we call it a an appearance of God, Yahweh himself came to them to say, you will have a son that I will bring forth through your womb to save. Y you can't not hear of a story that will be the fulfillment of that. A son will come forth from you to save Israel. Now, in accordance with the word of the Lord, this is exactly what's ha what happens. Look at me at 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. But we don't hear anything else about him. Nothing like Jesus, nothing of his upbringing is mentioned, other than he grew, and God blessed him, similar to the words about Jesus. And then it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Now, I want you to say that word to stir or to agitate or to move, that's what it means. The Spirit of God is moving him to carry out his mission. Uh, the Spirit came upon Samson more than any person, any biblical character. The most was on him. And God is going to save sinners through a spirit-filled Savior. That's the message of 13. You can, people draw parenting lessons out of it. It's God saves sinners through a spirit-filled Savior. So what do we do with this? Yeah, how in the world are we going to... 
The last thing I like to do is simply inform you. I, I do hope you understand more of the Bible when I'm finishing preaching. If not, the elders need to find another one. Uh, but, but hopefully you understand more of the scriptures after it's been preached. But to inform you is only part. I want to see you transformed. In other words, the more you know about the character of God, if true, the more you'll love him. And the more you'll love him, then the more of your life will be driven for his glory and you'll forsake the shiny stuff of this world. The last thing I want to do is try to move you with fear into obedience. That doesn't last. Any parent knows that. Uh, fear doesn't create a, a humble, joyful obedience. And neither does any sort of quid pro quo with God. I, I think if you see him as beautiful and gracious and kind, I think that is the greatest stimulation to move towards God with affections and holiness. We have to measure and see our love for God increase. So I want to do that right now with you. I want to look at five things that I think you see about God not about Samson yet, not about the parents, but just about God. Uh, first notice that he is a God of grace. He saves by grace. God saves by grace. He always has. He always will. It's not one way in the old, one way in the new. God always saves by grace. He always initiates salvation. He always moves first. You see them. They're not crying out. They're not repenting. They're not turning to God. They're not saying, please change me. They're not saying, I've had enough of this life. They are steep in the dead in their sins. Dead people don't move. God has to move to them, and he does it. He moves to them with a Savior being born. That's what he did to me. You know, C.S. Lewis calls God the transcendental interferer. He is a divine interferer. He interferes in our life. I was a CPA, beautiful wife, lovely home, happy life. He interfered. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't calling for him. I wasn't needing him. I wasn't scared into considering. He interfered in my life. He moved things out of the way, appeared, boom. We're going in a different direction. I wasn't consulted, wasn't, wasn't asked my opinion. It didn't mean I wasn't willful, I was, but he initiated with grace. He is a God that saves by grace. He does this over and over. Why? Well, to show you, well, really, to, yeah, to show you the absolute necessity of grace. You cannot turn to God apart from him first turning to you. That's the story of the Bible. But he does it over and over. See, oftentimes I think we get it wrong. We, we think that God comes to it. Like when we trained our kids to ride a bike. I'd get out there and, you know, we got the training wheels off, so now game's on, right? And so you're, you're with the child, whichever one. And, and we're riding along, and I'm running along with them, steadying the bike, making sure, because they're doing the nervous thing, you know. And, and they get going for a little bit, and then all of a sudden they get nervous, you grab the bike again, and you keep doing it. But then at one point, you see the light bulb turn on with the kid, and he's got it. They start pedaling, and now you don't have to help him anymore. And you know, at the, once you learn to ride a bike, you never have to learn again. You just get it. And that's the way we look at the Christian faith. God helps us. He takes the training wheels off. He gets us going, and then he sends us on our way, and then we're going on our own. That's not what we find here. The grace of God not only initiates salvation, but it continues it. You need the grace of God as much today. You may have been in the faith 50 years. You still need his persevering grace to keep you. And by the way, this isn't a downside. This is an upside. 
This means that some of you who are tripping and falling and failing right now, and you're beginning to actually wonder about the, the commitment that God has made to you, don't wonder. The grace that saves is the grace that continues to save. G.I. Packer, a theologian out of England, wrote these words. He passed away just a few years ago. He says, I need not torment myself with fear that my faith may fail. As grace has led me to faith in the first place, so grace will keep me believing to the end. Faith, both in its origin and continuance, is a gift of grace. So God saves by grace. That's the first thing we see. But then the second thing we see is that God saves in, in really unique and surprising ways. Look at Manoah and his wife, for example. Manoah is from the tribe of Dan. Dan was kind of a, a low tribe. They became idolaters. Uh, in Joshua 19, they were given their allotment of land, and they couldn't even drive out the people. They just made peace with them. They were right next to the Philistines, by the way. So to come from Dan uh, wouldn't be really anything that you'd say with any sort of pride, you know, pride or, or self-sufficiency. And not only that was he from Dan, she was both nameless and childless. She doesn't even get a name. Doesn't even get a name. I mean, how bad is that? I gotta refer to her as Manoah's wife. And she's not just childless, she's barren. And to be barren in this culture would be like forsaken of God. It was a scary thing because it's an agrarian society and who's going to take care of them when they get older? And yet this point of utter hopelessness is what God uses for his own purposes. This is the weakest part of her life and yet God chooses to use that. What do you think makes you useful to God? Most of us think, well, my education, my background, the way I'm in front of people, the personality I have, the position I've attained the experience I've gained. You know, it's, it's surprising to me, but that God always seems to grab the weak and the broken and those who are common, ordinary, marginalized, disenfranchised. He uses them to do his work. And that's what we see here. She's a nameless woman. She doesn't even get a name, and yet God is bringing a savior through her. This is incredible. Why would he do it? He does it so that we give him the glory that we wouldn't just take it for our own. Does this encourage you? I mean, those of you, you've written yourself off. You say, I'm too old to do anything anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the game. We're going to let those younger do it. Or maybe you're too young and you think, well, I don't have the experience. I don't have the wisdom they have. Or I don't know the Bible like he knows. Or I don't know people like she knows. And, and you, you look immediately at your weaknesses. We live in a meritocracy. We do. We live in a culture that values and, and rewards those who can accomplish the most. God does things different. He saves in unique ways. He goes to those that we look down upon to do his greatest work. So there is no one, you know, you begin to look at yourself and you always start with, these are my weaknesses. And that's a fine place to start. If you realize God uses those very things to move you forward, to do a work, to save you. Your points of hopelessness is where God may move first. So when you look down on those things, be reminded that God saves through those things. But then God also saves through impossible ways. Notice she's barren. Her womb is dead. He gives life to it. It should remind you, of course, of, Rebe or of Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth in the New Testament. They all were barren, and they all produced children that played some role in salvation. God loves to do things through impossible means. That's pretty cool. 
But what about bringing forth a child from a virgin? Now that's altogether different. It's one thing to wake up a barren womb. It's another thing to bring forth life without a man. But God does that. Why does God save in such a way we can add nothing to it? God is letting us know salvation belongs to him and him alone. Only salvation belongs to God. He's reminding us of the illusion of our power. You know, we feel secure if we're in a position of power, if we have things working, if we have everything in place, we feel safe, we feel secure. And God's saying that's an illusion. All the things that you feel in control of and are in good order, they will be out of order and you will lose control of them. If not, in some point in life, it will be in death. And God's saying, I'm the only one you can turn to. I was reading this morning in Psalm 123 for worship saying, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. That's what he's drawing us to. God alone. You know, Francis Schaeffer was a theologian in the 20th century. He, says all, he said every Christian should have on their prayer list something that is just impossible. You can't see it happening. It's just so far out of reach. Everyone should have one thing that they're praying for that only God can do in his glory. It's a good reminder to us to keep God does things through impossible ways. He does things through impossible ways. But God also saves through faith. And this is where Manoah and his wife come in. Uh, think about Manoah. He wants to know how to handle things, right? So he asked the angel, do you know what this angel, or what we now know is a theophany, Yahweh himself says, he doesn't give him any details. He, he lets lay that what I told your wife is what you're going to get. But here's what he says. He says, um, when he asks his name, he says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it's wonderful, wonderful. So God doesn't tell Manoah, any details of what's coming down the pike? He just says, this is who I am. This is my character. I'm wonderful. And that Hebrew word wonderful can be translated as beyond understanding. God is wonderful beyond measure. So instead of giving him the details of life that he wants to feel secure and safe, he says, I'm wonderful. Have you thought about God is wonderful? I mean, do you think about God as beautiful and wonderful and trustworthy? You know, the pagans in ancient religions, uh, they would always go to the palm reader or the fortune teller. And they need to know what's coming ahead so they can circ circumvent the problems that may come their way. Uh, we do the same thing in Christian circles. We tend to negotiate or we tend to manipulate God. So if problems come our way, uncertainties, we're we don't know, well, God, I'll do this if you do that. We begin to barter as if we across a bartering table with God. And what God says is, I'm not giving you any details. I'm calling you to trust me, but here's my character. It's wonderful. This is really a sign of maturity for the Christian when we, can, when we can look ahead and recognize we don't know what's actually coming. But he's wonderful, completely sovereign, will care for us. The Christian rests in faith. You know, John Calvin says you can't know God fully, but you can know him truly. You will not know everything. You don't know everything about anything. But he is wonderful. He's not calling to an anti-intellectualism here. He's not calling for that. 
At the end of the day, all of us face so many uncertainties that would overwhelm you if you really consider him. And he's saying, but I'm wonderful. I love you, I'll care for you. He's calling us to live by faith. Now faith is not just an entrance into the faith, which it is, I explained that earlier. But for the Christian, we walk by faith. You'll face uncertainties. He saves sinners. He sends a savior to save. He's committed to us. The last thing that we see here is that God saves us completely. And this is going to lead us right into communion, or Levy to lead us in communion, um, that he saves us completely. Notice in verse 5, it says he begins to save from the Philistines. He only begins the work. And now, I want to remind you that the book of Judges, the first two chapters are introductions. The chapters 17 to 21, it's an epilogue. It's a conclusion. It's two conclusions. So the ending chapters of the book of Judges don't happen at the end of the period of the Judges. It's kind of a commentary on the life of Israel throughout the entire book. You'll see no Judges mentioned in those chapters. Chapters 13 to 16, Samson, he's the final judge. He's the last judge. There's no more judges. We're at the end of the book right now. But at the end of the book, it says he begins to save. What's this mean? Well, of course, it, it calls us to look, because the last line in the book of Judges is, there is no king. So we move right into seeing David. So Samson begins with David completes, right? David destroys the Philistines. Remember the big guy that came down with the stone kind of thing, Goliath? So he began what David is completing with the Philistines. But there's a lot more going on. Because the parallels of Samson to Christ are profound. The, the picture of salvation that Samson is bringing is going to be met. So you think of Samson and Jesus. They both were miraculous birth. They both were divine announced, uh, um, uh, divine announcements. They both had mothers who were told of the divine plan. They both were filled with the spirit. They both were betrayed by intimates. They both were forsaken by God. They both died to save many people. Uh, the, the parallels are profound. The big difference that we're going to see is that Samson began a work of salvation and Christ has completed the work of salvation. Now, now remember, Samson is one of many saviors or what we call types of Christ. You see it in Abraham, you see it in Isaac. Abraham was given the promise that the nations would be blessed. Isaac is a child of promise. Jacob, Moses, Moses delivered the people out of Israel. He was a savior. You think about Joshua. Joshua saved the people, brought them to the land. His name means salvation belongs to God. You see it through judges. You see it in David. David's the high watermark of salvation. The king and the judge, the one who said from him, an eternal kingdom will be established. But none of them saved, really. They saved from temporal and physical circumstances. But none were able to change us, stop the cycle that we continue to walk through until Christ came. And that's what brings us to celebrating communion, is that Jesus Christ alone accomplished what they pictured. He completed what they started. So Jesus Christ, by taking upon himself our sins, and this is really the gospel message. The gospel message is, is that God has, he wants to save sinners. And so he sent a spirit-filled savior. And this Savior substituted himself for us. You're going to see that in Samson. He substituted himself for us. He bore our sin, our guilt, our shame. And God rightly judged him for our sin. Our sin 
has been legitimately judged in the punishment of the son. Just as you are sinned against, you want retribution or some sort of reconciliation with those who have sinned against you, that, that internal feeling that you have, it was met. God reconciled us to himself through his broken body and through his shed blood. He did it all. Now, all these judges brought partial salvations that led to a partial rest. Christ has brought us salvation that leads to an eternal rest. This is why we sing songs like, it is well with my soul. You can't add anything to it. You're called to just enjoy it, to revel in it. Let it humble you, but let it cause you to rejoice. The whole point of the sermon is not trying to figure Samson out. It's trying to figure God out. We want to know who he is, the one who has given us rest through the giving of his own son. So we see here a glorious God, one that saves by grace, one that saves through unique ways. The people shouldn't have been surprised when Jesus came from Nazareth, you know, looked like illegitimacy between the father and the mother, and look, he's a son of a carpenter, and that shouldn't have thrown him, and it shouldn't throw us. He saves through impossible ways, he saves through faith, but he saves completely. You can rest, you may have come in here, with a burden and weight of sin. The table is for not the perfect, but the penitent, those who repent. And so let's take a moment now and confess to him or ask him to give you grace to understand the unfathomable nature of his mercy. And then I'll, I'll pray for us in just a moment. Hear the words of the Apostle John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, uh, this table 